Welcome back to the Peace Production. I'm your host, Matt Adamson. This week, we look into the ongoing anti-government protests in Lebanon and how, for the first time, sectarian divides are being challenged. Joining me today is social media correspondent Martina Moroni. Hello, Martina. Hi, Matt. Martina, why don't you give us a brief summary of, of what's been happening in Lebanon in the past couple of weeks? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so the protests originally started in December last year. Um, but not with that many people in the street. But um, the introduction of a tax on the communications application, WhatsApp, really sparked more involvement in the process, um, in the protests, and drew more people out onto the streets. Um, the protests have really been against the corruption and mismanagement of resources in the country, um, where electricity, running clean water, and garbage have been real issues. Um, in recent years. Um, the protests have mainly been under the Lebanese flag and have been really pointed in um, bridging some of the sectarian divisions that characterise the political and social context in the country. Uh, the Hezbollah Shiite um, group has been really influential in the country over the past few decades and has come out against the protests whilst the incumbent government has offered a reform package that has failed to meet many of the protesters' needs. Um, the distrust and dis disillusionment with the government has really undermined those rooms and the promises that the government has made. Whilst the protests are only new and face um, decades-old sectarian divisions within the country, they've really made an impact because of their bridging of sectarian divides, yeah. Mm, excellent. Um, you talked a lot about the um, sectarian division in Lebanese politics in there, and I just think it's useful for, for our listeners to highlight that this really goes back to um, the French colonial situation in Lebanon, where um, after, after that ended, there was a half-and-half ratio of Christian to Muslim seats in the parliament and following the Lebanese civil war um, that was between the years 1975 and 90 there emerged an agreement called the TAFE agreement um, that saw seats in parliament be divided on a ratio of six to five Christians to Muslims which is actually quite interesting that that persists because um, Lebanon is a majority Muslim country it seems and really the powers does seem to sit disproportionately in the hands of some very wealthy Christian businessmen. Um, you mentioned the role of, of Hezbollah there. Why don't you give us a bit of um, a bit of broader context around how Hezbollah is such an important player in, in Lebanese society? Um, yeah, so they're a Shiite group, um, which is obviously a Muslim denomination. Um, and they hold a lot of the political power in the country. They're part of the alliance. Um, and their leader, in response to the protests, really came out and um, pretty much said that there would be a power vacuum and that institutional change was the way forward instead of structural change like the protesters were asking for, which was really interesting. Yeah, that, that was really interesting considering... Um you know, you've got the leader of a group that has caused a lot of unrest in Lebanon historically, essentially coming out to bat for keeping the, the government in until the fresh elections can be had. Um, 
just for a bit of context there, Hezbollah has been a very important um, player in the wider um, Middle East conflict. They allied, have allied quite heavily with Iran um, and, and their conflict with the US and, and Gulf states. Um, you also touched on the waste crisis in Lebanon. Um, I understand that it kind of um, arose um, in 2015 when authorities closed a major land landfill near Beirut and this process has actually had some um, quite good unintended consequences in the sense that it has led to quite a few of the protesters actually cleaning up the streets and, and taking care of their city and trying to improve the situation there. Just want to take, it, take us back to the power sharing system in Lebanon. There's actually 18 religious sects there and um, Essentially, which sect you belong to is a bit of a predetermining factor of, of which job you're likely to get. Um, mm -hmm. And it's been quite clear in the protest that while the sort of um, the tax on, on WhatsApp and the value-added tax increase was sort of catalysts for um, the, pro the protests of the most recent couple of weeks, they have grown increasingly directed towards um, sectarian leaders and how the sectarian system is essentially perpetuating inequality in, in Lebanon. Um, I understand protests grew a bit more violent in the past week. Could you perhaps tell us a bit about that, Martina? Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely right, as you were saying. Um, so it's quite interesting about a quarter of the GDP goes to a very small elite um, proportion of the leadership, which is interesting as a side note. Um, but you're absolutely right. So on Friday, some Hezbollah aligned protesters um, joined the originally peaceful protest um, in Beirut and across the country. And they were far more violent than the protesters had been up until that up until that point and in reaction government um forces came in and were forced to use tear gas and more violent means of controlling the protesters which up until that point hadn't been used and as a result quite a few people were injured and the protests for the large part carried on and were um quite powerful in their response Mm, yeah, and it's quite um, quite startling some of the socio-cultural um, impacts of this protest in terms of what is being put out in the Lebanese media at the moment. Um, usually it is very much uh, political elites peddling their messages and kind of banging their chest a lot in the major current affairs shows. But at the moment, it is almost an, an open mic night on some of these channels. Um, what we see on Lebanese screens is the voices of thousands of ordinary citizens who are essentially getting their 30 seconds in front of the camera and a lot of a lot of what is being said is, is very much um, along the same tune of what we understand the protest to be in the sense that they are very um, unsatisfied with um, the political elite that are ruling the country at the moment and sort of want to see wider systemic change in that um, the I guess the main tipping point that a lot of the press has been focusing on at the moment has been the um, the economic situation in Lebanon and just quite how volatile that has become. It wasn't long ago that Lebanon was referred to as the Switzerland of the Middle East. 
Um, they did so well. They had a sophisticated banking sector and, and a thriving tourism industry. But today, they have one of the heaviest public debt burdens in the world. Um, do you have perhaps any insight as to how Lebanon got to where they are? Yeah, well, it appears that the government was essentially um, unable to do a whole lot. Um, so the fragmentation of, as we were talking about, the sectarian lines of the political power balance requires a two-thirds majority agreement in the cabinet um, and also has entrenched political divisions, which makes it difficult to enact pragmatic change in the same way we'd see, for example, in other countries without those sectarian divisions. Um, so what that's resulted in, essentially, is mismanagement of and in a lot of cases um, corruption within the government and mismanagement of the resources that they use. Um, that in, in itself has resulted in an electricity um, system that can't um, service people or provide 24-hour electricity um, in any part of the country. Um, and in trying to prop up that electricity, um, those electricity centres, the country has amassed a debt that's 150% of its own GDP, which makes it second or third on, in the world in relation to its GDP, depending mm -hmm. on the measure. Um, and as you were saying before, that it created a waste crisis where the mismanagement of resources just ended up in the Beirut landfill being closed. And in addition to that, um, the water is in many places undrinkable, which has obviously had a huge impact on the quality of life for the Lebanese people. Mm, excellent. Um, and in response to these protests, the, um, the president has come out with some proposed economic reforms. Are there any of these that sort of stand out to you as having the potential to I guess, um, improve the situation in Lebanon in the short term? Yeah, so they've tried to do it, well, they've promised to do a few things. So they're aiming to provide a reduction of one trillion Lebanese pounds in the deficit in the power sector, uh, which has obviously had a big impact on the debt, the amassment of debt. Um, in addition to that, they're trying to, in general, speed up the construction of the power sector, uh, which could obviously have a large impact. Um, in addition, they have proposed a 50% cut in salaries of current and former presidents, ministers and lawmakers, which aimed to um, meet some of the needs of the protesters in terms of their issues with the embezzlement of funds and the corruption in the government over the past few decades. Which I guess that um, is quite symbolic only in the sense that most of these current and former ministers, laws makers, presidents are already likely to be millionaires. So <laughs> it wasn't really yeah. make much of a difference in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. And when you already have corruption or at least alleged corruption, it's obviously very difficult to even be able to trust those promises. Mm, yeah. Mm. Um, um, one of the big thing that jumped out to me, Martina, was that um, there was a plan to approve social security benefits for seniors by the end of the year, and I, it actually shocked me that Lebanon didn't have this. Um, to be honest, yeah. Um, yeah. They, 
I've um, proposed to launch a, a bunch of investment projects for the northern and southern entrances of the Capital Bay route, but that is actually one of the issues and is that a lot of what they are proposing development-wise is in and around Beirut and not the neglected periphery, um, which has kind of caused this protest to be a bit different from um, protests that have happened in Lebanon in the past in the sense that people are turning out all across the country and, and not just in the big cities. Um, and a lot of this, um, I guess, distrust and, and unhappiness with the government has sort of come from the fact that they, these periphery areas have not had the investment they've needed um, since the Lebanese Civil War. Um, it, it's quite obvious that a lot of the development has been um, concentrated in and around Beirut and leaving these areas to, um, to really just suffer in poverty and, um, and, to, and a lack of infrastructure. I mean, power is only on for about 12 hours a day in these areas. Um, they, they have rolling blackouts. Um, Beirut, by contrast, only has about three hours um, off a day, I'm, I'm told from the latest reports. Um, that is, yeah, I guess that's why these kind of protests are so different in the sense that um, they're also leaderless, aren't they, Martina? There's no real, um, I guess, political backing and political group that is sort of coming out to support these protesters. They've all just sort of come out from work in their day lives on their own accord and have really um, kind of, I guess, come together in, in ways that has been quite, um, has not really happened in Lebanon before. Yeah, absolutely. So in the past, a lot of the political protests that have happened, particularly in 2005, when they forced out the Syrian uh, control in the region, uh, were um, led by political parties themselves and by political, um, polit politically aligned groups. But that hasn't happened here. It's been very citizen-led and it's been, I guess, disorganised in a good way, I guess you could say. Um, in that they don't necessarily have demands that are specific. It's very structurally um, aimed at structural change rather than specific reform, which is to some extent why the reform posed by the government hasn't really been accepted. Um, and so, yeah, it's very interesting that it's very citizen-led and, um, yeah, absolutely. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um... And I guess the international response, I mean, it hasn't been that much in terms of concrete action this far, but the European Union has come out in, in support of um, Prime Minister Hariri's economic reforms and, and is really committed to Lebanon's stability. Mm. Um, but sort of in the broader context here, there is a sense that Lebanon is sort of a litmus test here for um, countries that are in a similar economic situation and mm -hmm. the sort of whether they will also experience the mass sort of mobilization of of protesters in response to planned austerity measures that might further um downgrade the lives of the people there do you think there's a the potential for these sort of protests to spread to um, other countries that have similar economic troubles absolutely we can draw a parallel um, even with the situation in Iraq at the moment. I mean, you have a different de demographic coming out. It's not necessarily 
as widespread or middle class. Um, it's a lot of working class men particularly that are coming out, but it's the same issues, you know, it's inequality, it's mismanagement of resources where they do exist, especially in Iraq in terms of um, natural resources. And so it is really um, a litmus test almost in the region for the different inequality based and um, sectarian in this case divides that exist and how that gets dealt with in the coming years. Mm. And do you have any, uh, I guess, thoughts around where this whole situation is heading and what's likely to happen happen next in Lebanon? Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting situation in that um, where sectarian divides have been so entrenched over the history of Lebanon, um, a new protest that's only 10 or so days old has managed to somehow bridge a lot of those and going forward it should be really interesting to see um, if that has the legs to continue I guess. Um, Hezbollah themselves came out a few days ago and kind of made the comment that there would be a power vacuum if the government was um, ousted which was interesting and does present obvious issues in terms of how that goes forward so the uh, the protesters have various kind of demands around either having new elections or having complete structural change away from sectarianism and um, towards a new potentially technocratic kind of at least interim government. Um, but overall, obviously, if the protests continue um, and if they denigrate, if the situation denigrates any further, then the international community will probably have to step in at some point, particularly with the amount of debt and the lack of um, financial resources available to support that kind of crisis. And so it should be really interesting going forward. Um, and I guess quality of life for the Lebanese people should be front and center in that um, solution. Mm, mm, and there's this, the um, increasing worry that, Lebanon, that the Lebanese economy will end in default. Um, which I guess is, I mean, very likely given the current debt to GDP ratios, but they really do need um, foreign investment, whether this be in the form of direct investment from the state or from the the World Bank. Um, what I see in, in Lebanon in, in terms of what might happen next is the political um, structure to me does not, appear sustainable in the sense that it proliferates these kinds of I guess very much demographic and sectarian divides that are you know becoming increasingly um, irrelevant and um, just just unacceptable to Lebanese people um, so for me there needs to be um, systemic change at that level if there is, if the um, people's confidence in the government is to sort of be restored, I mean, the international community doesn't doubt the Lebanese people's right to to protest. Um, really, um, what will cause these people to stop protesting is probably the need to go back to work. And, and to be honest, because what the government has proposed, well, it's some short-term relief in terms of the economic measures contained in that plan put out um, 
at the beginning of the week, it doesn't really show how they will pay down their debt and how they will um, improve the, the sort of quality of life of Lebanese people um, because there is about 40% of the country now living below the poverty line, which is, I think, set at four Lebanese dollars per day. And you contrast that to the sort of, um, I guess, almost oligopoly that is Lebanese politics. The people are only likely to become further disenfranchised with their government. So for me, what might happen next is that there will be some sort of, I guess, overhaul of the political system. Not not immediately, but I do think that there will be um, change in, the, in that over the next maybe a year or two, but then for me, it's only likely to get worse before it gets better in the sense that these protests will continue and will probably likely get more violent. And we need to be just thinking about how we can mitigate that as an international community in terms of perhaps being proactive and, and sending monitors and, and peacekeepers there to um, sort of deter what might be about to happen. Um, mm. And really the, um, relief that needs to come to Lebanon honestly can't come soon enough in terms of bringing up these people's quality of, of life. Um, do you have any further comments, Martina? Not in particular, no. I think we've mainly covered the, yeah. Awesome. Um, well, it seems to me that the, uh, the formula in, in Lebanon for most people at the moment will be a bit of... Uh, work, protest, sleep, and repeat. Um, yep. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you very much <laughs> for joining me today. Um, it was great, right, Martina. Thank you, thank you for joining me, Martina, and a special thanks to our correspondents, Tess Brenham and Tim Hardy, for writing on this subject. From myself and everyone else at the OWP, thank you for joining us, and until next time, goodbye.